of prayer, and we will begin. Let's bow together. Our dear Father in heaven, we're so very thankful, Lord, for the Willow Avenue Church of Christ. We're thankful, Father, for her elders that oversee the church here. We're thankful for each member and the work that they do, the Bible class teachers. We pray, Father, that you will bless us as we seek to teach the truth and stand for that which is right and to reach the community around us and the world around us with the gospel. Our Father, we're thankful for the sacrifice of the blood of Jesus Christ, that we can be washed of our sins and have eternity in heaven with you. Our Father, we pray that you'll be with us through our class tonight. May all that we do be to your glory. We offer this prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, it has been a little bit of time since we have done the memory chart here, so why don't we go ahead and start with that. And I tell you what, I'm going to go all the way back, and we will go uh, Acts 1. Let's go ahead and do Acts, let's do it all, 1 through 15. Acts chapters 1 through 5 are A, B, C, D, and E. So A, chapter 1, is, is, is what? Apostle and an ascension, the ascension of Jesus. Acts chapter 2 is the letter B, beginning of the church. 3 is C. 4 is D, disciples detained. Uh, uh, 5 is, man, I've lost track. 5 is E, the evil companions. Who are the evil companions? Ananias and Sapphira. All right, then we start to rhyme. Acts chapter 6, seven men chosen to fix. That is the seven men that were chosen out uh, to... Uh, address the problem of the Grecian widows. Acts chapter 7, Stephen stoned and looks to heaven. You've got Stephen's sermon at the end of it. He is stoned to death. He looks to heaven and he sees Christ. He speaks to him. That's the whole chapter. Acts chapter 8, two men who don't wait, and specifically that is to obey the gospel. Who are the two conversion accounts in Acts chapter 8? Simon the sorcerer and Ethiopian eunuch, all right? Two conversion accounts. Acts chapter 9, Saul is struck blind. You've got the first conversion account of Saul. There's three of them in the book of Acts, Acts 9, 22, and 26. Acts chapter 10, Gentiles begin. Acts chapter 11, Gentiles can go to heaven. They sound the same. The chapters are the same. One is the event. The other is the retelling of the event. Acts chapter 12, Herod exalts himself. How does Herod exalt himself in Acts chapter 12? Two ways. Well, three ways, really. He kills James. I heard somebody say that. He arrests Peter. And then what? He gives this speech, and they say, oh, it's the voice of a god, and he just loves it. He eats it up, and then he is eaten up. All right, Acts chapter 13, sun not seen, and what is that a reference to? Elamus, yeah, he's struck blind, and he cannot see for a season. Acts 14, this was a kind of word uh, sounding similar. 14 is for them, and tell you what, we'll stop there because that's right where we're going to be, so we won't get ahead of ourselves. Um, 14 is going to be 
for them. I'll go ahead and tell you what's going to happen is in 14, they're going to think that Paul and Barnabas are gods, and they're going to bring all these gifts for them. Acts 15, you've got fifth and diff. You've got two differences that are going to take place. Number one, there is a big difference between Paul and Barnabas, and they're going to have just a knockdown drag out between them to the point that they separate company. And then you've got a big difference that takes place because of the Gentiles, and they're going to have to have a conference to determine about circumcision and some other things. So that is the first 15 chapters. All right, we are in Acts chapter 13. Paul and Barnabas are at the church in Antioch, and the church is going to send them out. First, they are going to go to Cilicia. Um, does this have a... Ah, it does. Okay. First, they're going to go to Seleucia, and you can see that on the map here. They are in Antioch, and they're going to go to Seleucia. Then they're going to sell to Salamis. They're going to preach in the synagogue in Salamis. Then they're going to go to the east side of the island of Cyprus, and this is Paphos. They go to a city called Paphos. This is where they meet Sergius Paulus. You can see that. Sergius Paulus was a government official. He was interested in learning the truth. The Bible says he was a wise man, a man of wisdom. But he was under the influence of this faker who was named Elymas, also called Bar-Jesus, and he opposed them. In fact, the language is written such that they had several serious confrontations between Paul and Barnabas. And finally... Paul tells him, you are a child of the devil, and he strikes him blind. When they leave there, they're going to go to Perga. When they get to Perga, they're going to be on land now, and they're going to travel about 100 miles to Antioch of Pisidia. From what I have read, this is a long and dangerous road. When they get to Perga, John Mark decides, I don't want to do this anymore. We don't know why, but he leaves and he travels back to Jerusalem. The reason why, we don't know. What we're going to learn when we get to chapter 15 is Paul was really put out at him about this. And the next time that Barnabas says, hey, let's get John Mark and take him, Paul says, no, he left us the last time. And so this is what this is going to be a reference to. So they're going to travel from here, and they go to Antioch of Pisidia. Have you heard this name before, Antioch? Okay. What we saw here is they left from Antioch. So don't get confused. And the Bible lays this out. You've got Antioch, which is in Acts 11.26. The disciples were first called Christians in Antioch. You've got the church in Jerusalem, which is where the church started. This is kind of the hub of the Jewish church. Then the hub of the Gentile church becomes Antioch, and Paul's missionary journeys are sponsored by, overseen, they are launched from the church in Antioch. Anytime you read about this Antioch, it's called Antioch in Pisidia, and so it's differentiated that way. So where we're going to pick up here is the church in Antioch in Pisidia. They go there, and they are going to start preaching, and they're going to have very mixed reaction there. So Antioch and Pisidia, this is Acts chapter 13, they go into the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and they are offered the chance to speak. 
And so they take it. This was common practice when people would visit. They would say, uh, hey, do you have any words of exhortation to offer us? And they would just let them speak. I've oftentimes thought about that. Could you imagine what trouble you would get in just to have a random person show up and say, hey, would you like to speak to us today? But that was their practice. And so Paul and Barnabas begin to speak. Paul gives a brief history of the Old Testament, and he traces it, bringing them down to the coming of Jesus. Now, I'm going to overlap a little bit uh, from where we were, and we're going to pick up in verse 39. Acts 13, 39. He tells them about Jesus, and we're right in the middle of a word, a, a phrase here. So let's pick up. Um, let's see. Are you reading for us, David? Okay. Yep. Pick up right in the middle of verse 39. He just mentioned Jesus, and by him, Jesus. And by him, everyone who believes is justified from all three things from which you could not be justified by the law of Moses. Okay, he tells them, by this man Jesus, I have traced the history, I've told you he's coming, and by him, everyone who believes is justified from all the things that he could not be justified by under the law of Moses. Now, several things here. Number one, he says, everyone who believes is justified. This is a passage that is used by the denominational world to teach belief only because he says everyone who believes is justified. Is it belief only? I hate to go over this every single time we see it in the book of Acts, but you need to know how to answer it because this is a common passage. Everyone who believes is justified. Well, we know it's not. Uh, we know that is not the case. In fact, um, here's the passage, Acts 13, 39, and by him, that is Christ, everyone who believes is justified from all things. How do we know it's not belief only? If somebody asked you that, how would you answer that? That's a broad term. Okay, it's a broad term. It is, uh, grammatically, it's a synecdoche, that is a part for a whole, and I won't go through all that, we did a few weeks ago, but... It is a general term. It is the first step in the plan of salvation. So he uses that one frequently to say those who believe. And it's implied that they obey. How do you know that that's not the only thing that you have to do? Well, it doesn't mention repentance. Everyone that I know in the religious world believes you also have to repent. It doesn't mention that. If you ask them where is it, they say, well, that's understood. When he says that you have to believe, that's understood. Well, that's the point. When he says believe, it's a synecdoche referring to all of these things. Also, you could point out, uh, let's see here, jumped ahead. Hebrews 5 and verse 9, speaking of Jesus, having been perfected, he became the author of eternal salvation to who? To whom? To all them that obey him. Now, Acts 13.39 says everyone who believes in him is justified. And it's talking about the things that he did. Because of the things he did, those who believe are justified. But then Hebrews 5.9 says because of the things he did, he perfected it and became the author of eternal salvation to all them that obey him. And there are tons of verses like this that you can go to. So don't let anyone do that. Here's the second thing that I want you to notice that's highlighted in blue. It says, and by him, Christ, everyone who is justified from all things from which 
you could not be justified by under the law of Moses. So he is saying to these Jews in the synagogue, you can't be justified under the law of Moses. Is that a big thing to say to them? Yeah, they're not going to like to hear this. Now, if you can't be justified under the law of Moses, that does raise some interesting questions because we've got passages like this. Luke chapter 1 and verse 6, this is talking about Zechariah and Elizabeth, the parents of John the Baptist. They were both righteous before God, walking in all the commandments and ordinances of the Lord, blameless. This is before Christ died. Now, we just read that you can't be justified under the law of Moses, and yet we see that they were counted as righteous and followed all the commandments and blameless under the law of Moses. Seems like we kind of have an issue there. Here's another passage. 1 Kings 15 and 5, this is David, because David did that which was right in the eyes of the Lord. And it says, and he did not turn aside from anything that the Lord commanded, except the matter of Uriah the Hittite. So David is counted as faithful. He did all that God commanded him under the law of Moses. And yet we just read, you can't be justified under the law of Moses. Here's Job 1 in verse 1. Job would have been prior to the law of Moses in the patriarchal period. There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job, and that man was blameless and upright, one who feared God and shunned evil. Here is a man prior to Christ who was counted as blameless in the sight of God, upright in the sight of God, a man during the kings, one of the kings who is righteous in the sight of God, Right before Christ died, you've got two more people. And I could have put lots of these. The point is, you can read all through the Old Testament about people who were righteous and blameless and they were going to go to heaven. And yet, we just got through reading that Paul goes into the synagogue and he tells them that Christ came to save you because you could not be justified by the law of Moses. How do you explain that? Why do we have all these people who were justified who lived under the law of Moses? And Paul says, you cannot be justified under the law of Moses. Let's look at some other verses that I think do help explain this. Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 1 says, For the law, that is the law of Moses, having the shadow of good things to come, and not the very image of those things, can never with these same sacrifices, that is, the sacrifices of the law of Moses, which they offer continually, year by year, make those who approach perfect. Now, let me put that in common language. They had to offer animal sacrifices. Every year they would do it. But he says, under that law, with those sacrifices, even though they do it every single year, it does not make them perfect. Why did they do it every year if it didn't make them perfect? Why did they keep on doing this? And why did it not make them perfect when we just read that there was a man like Job who was perfect and who was blameless? And we read about Zechariah and Elizabeth who were righteous and blameless in the sight of God. Again, we seem to have a problem. Let's look at another verse here. Romans 3 and verse 25 says, 
whom God set forth as a propitiation, that is Jesus, he set him forth as a propitiation by his blood through faith to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance God has, now listen to this, passed over the sins that were previously committed. What is that talking about? Notice in the blue, it is by the blood of Christ, now notice in the yellow, that God passed over the sins that were previously committed. What is that talking about? One more passage. Hebrews 9 and verse 15, And for this reason, He is the mediator of a new covenant that by means of His death... Now see, I've got that phrase in blue. In the previous verse, I've got a phrase in blue. In Romans 3, I've got by His blood in blue. In Hebrews 9, I've got by means of His death in blue. Why? Because it's the same thing. His death, His blood. It's talking about the same thing. Now, if you look at the yellow, they mean the same thing. Passed over the sins that were previously committed. Now notice Hebrews 9. For the redemption of the transgressions under the first covenant. Now, if you look at these two parallel verses, this is what you get. By the death of Christ, by the blood of Christ, the sins that were previously committed were washed away. The sins that were under the first covenant were washed away. Now, let's back up and let's tie all this together. I don't want to beat a dead horse here, but we got to get this because this is very important. If you go back to... Acts 13 and verse 39, And by Christ everyone who believes is justified from all things from which you could not be justified under the law of Moses. But then we get, they came every year. They would offer sacrifices continually, though they could not be made perfect. Brethren, what is the explanation to all of this? This is what it amounts to. God knows the future. God knew that Jesus was going to die on the cross. Hebrews 13.8 refers to Him, I mean, Revelation 13.8 refers to Him as the Lamb that was slain before the foundation of the world. You know what that means? In the mind of God, this is a done deal. It was going to happen. There is no doubt about it. When God says something is going to happen, you can't change it. Christ was going to die on the cross. And so, under the Old Testament law, they would offer animal sacrifices. And if they were faithful in doing what God said to do, they could remain blameless in His sight. Why? Because God in advance, it's almost like writing a check. You write someone a check and you give it to them and it's paid, but it's really no good till they take it to the bank and they cash it. God knew Christ was going to die if people would comply with the Old Testament law, he said, in fact, back up to the patriarchal law. We mentioned Job. Under the patriarchal law, he said, this is what you got to do. If you'll do these things, then we will, I will appropriate to you the blood of Christ. Then comes the law of Moses. If you will do these things, you'll be washed in the blood of Christ. But it is not until Jesus actually dies and shed his blood is the price actually paid. That's why the people under the old law, they would come every year and they would offer these sacrifices 
And in a sense, it would roll their sins forward another year. But with those sacrifices, they weren't made perfect. And the blood of an animal can't make you perfect. The blood of an animal can't wash away your sins. And so they kept doing it, and they kept doing it, and they kept doing it. And God counted them as righteous, but the debt was never paid until Christ came and died on the cross. That's why I've sometimes heard people describe it this way, and it's a good way. They say that the blood of Jesus flowed backward and forward. Does that make sense? That's a good description, isn't it? Because that's what happened. And that's why they could be counted righteous under the old law. So he says to these Jews in verse 39, And by him everyone who believes is justified from all things from which you could not be justified under the law of Moses. That is powerful. This is a key to what the blood of Christ did in Acts 13 and 39. All right, let's keep going. Let's go to, go ahead and read verses 40 and 41. Acts 13, 40 and 41. Beware, therefore, lest what has been spoken in the prophets come upon you. Behold, you despisers, marvel and perish, for I work a work in your days, a work which you will by no means believe, though one were to declare it to you. Okay, he says... This man Christ has come to cleanse you of your sins, both those covered under the old law and where we are currently. And then in verse 40, he says, Beware, therefore, lest what was spoken by the prophets come upon you. And he's going to quote here. He's going to make a quotation from the book of Habakkuk. What's interesting is the quotation he makes is about the destruction by the Chaldeans that the Chaldeans were going to come and they were going to destroy the Jews. And he takes that and he applies it to those people. And he says, just like they were warned and they were destroyed, don't let that same thing happen to you. Now what's he saying? You're being warned, beware, don't you fall into that same trap. It's interesting that he makes this phrase. He says, for I work a work in your days a work which you will, will by no means believe, though someone declare it to you. Think about what he's saying to these people. He says, beware so that you don't perish. There are works being done in your sight. This is being declared to you. Remember, they're doing miracles to prove it. And he says, but you will by no means believe it. Though it's been said to you, though it's been proven to you, you won't believe it. Are there some people that no matter what you show them, they will not believe it? I think about the fact that they had just left, if we go back on our map just a little bit here, and you look at, um, go back to Paphos. Here they are in Antioch of Pisidia. They were in Perga, and Paphos is where they met Elymas. Remember what the Bible says about Elymas? He said, Paul said to him, O thou who is full of deceit, all fraud, you son of the devil, enemy of all righteousness, you do not cease perverting the straight ways of the Lord. Do you think he might have been one of these guys who was not going to believe no matter what you showed him? I think there's a good chance. Now, we get in trouble if we look at somebody and say, that person's not going to believe no matter what you tell them. Do you think people might have thought that about the Apostle Paul? 
Saul, he's persecuting and killing Christians. Somebody might have thought, that guy's hopeless. There is no chance he would obey the gospel. But what Paul says here is there are some people, he said, you will by no means believe the gospel. That is a very interesting text to me. I want to show you a quick contrast, and I'll move on here. Let's see here. This is it. I want you to notice the contrast in these two passages. 2 Thessalonians 2.11 says, Because they did not receive the love of the truth, that they might be saved. They did not receive the love of the truth, that they might be saved. Some people do not want the truth, they do not love the truth, and because they will not receive the truth, they will not be saved. Jeremiah 29 and verse 13 says, And you will seek me, and you will find me, when you search for me with all of your heart. You've got a contrast of two very different people here. You've got one person who loves the Lord and seeks Him with all of their heart. They're open to the truth, they are honest, and the Lord said, that person, they will find me, that is His promise, if they seek me with all of their heart. But then you contrast another person who is not interested. This person, he says, does not receive a love of the truth. There's one person who loves the truth with all of their heart. The Lord said, I'm going to make a way if you seek. This other person does not love the Lord, and he says they will not receive the truth. Why am I even mentioning that? Sometimes when you get out and you try to teach some people, you will just pour your heart into it, and you can't convince them, and it gets frustrating to you, and you get to thinking, what am I not doing right? If I only said this, and I'll have people call me sometimes, and they'll say, I can't get through to this person. Is there anything that you can say? And sometimes I'll try, but one of the things I have learned is some people, as Paul said, will not receive the truth. Was that true when Jesus was teaching? Yeah. Was it a fault with Jesus? Was it that he wasn't a good enough teacher? It's not that. Really what it comes down to is the hearts of some people. And so Paul said to these people, some of you will not receive the truth. And he knew that. Okay, let's go on to verse number 42. So when the Jews went out of the synagogue, the Gentiles begged that these words might be preached to them the next Sabbath. Okay, this is interesting. The King James Version says, when the Jews went out of the synagogue, the Gentiles begged so that they could hear more. It sounds like there's a division. The Jews left and they said, we don't want to hear this. And the Gentiles said, we want to hear some more of this. Next, next Sabbath, tell us some more. Um, this seems to be a textual variation. That is, when you look at some of the ancient manuscripts, there's disagreement. The King James, without getting too technical and getting into a lot of jargon, the King James follows what we call the textus receptus. If you look at other versions, like the English Standard Version, it says this, and they went out, and the people begged that these things might be told to them the next Sabbath. It doesn't say anything about the Jews and the Gentiles uh, being in disagreement here. 
And it seems that based on the textual evidence and the ancient manuscripts that the King James is incorrect here. That this is not a Jew-Gentile thing that's taking place. It really, what it really says is that the Jews and the proselytes wanted to hear more. So there's, there's interest. It's not a big deal. We don't need to get hung up on it, but that is something that is a textual variation. All right, so they teach. He says, some of you will reject this. Some did. But others are saying, we really want to hear some more about this. All right, verse 43. Now when the congregation had broken up, many of the Jews and devout proselytes followed Paul and Barnabas, who, speaking to them, persuaded them to continue in the grace of God. Okay, it says many of the Jews and the devout proselytes. That speaks to what we just read. It wasn't the idea that the Jews didn't want to hear it, but the Gentiles did. This tells us that many of the Jews and the proselytes, a proselyte, what's a proselyte? Okay, a Gentile who had accepted Judaism all the way to the point of circumcision. So for all practical purposes, he's a Jew, but with a Gentile background. So the Jews and the Gentiles, it says they followed Paul and Barnabas. Probably, there's debate about this, but probably that means they followed their teaching, they obeyed the gospel. And then it says Paul and Barnabas persuaded them to continue in the grace of God. That would indicate to me that they are in the grace of God, that they had obeyed the gospel. And he's telling them to continue, be faithful. That is, they taught the word and they had conversions there is what we're being told. All right, verse number 44. On the next Sabbath, almost the whole city came together to hear the word of God. Okay, how about this? The next Sabbath, almost the whole city came together to hear the word of God. We have that same problem in Cookville, don't we? that the whole city is turning out. Wouldn't that be something? This first week, when people heard this, some people obeyed the gospel, and the news of this spread to the point that the next week, almost the whole city, I'm trying to envision all of these people gathered around, packing in there, trying to hear the message. Verse 45. But when the Jews saw the multitudes, they were filled with envy and contradicting and blaspheming, they opposed the things spoken by Paul. Okay, the Jews, the Jewish leaders saw this, and they were filled with envy. Why were they filled with envy? What is envy? Okay, they're losing the popularity, they're losing their leadership, that is... We're supposed to be the religious leaders. We're the ones that you want, uh, that you should be turning to for religious advice and for teaching. What happens then when uh, someone else comes in and teaches and the whole city wants to hear them? They have their small group that gathers around to hear their teaching, but this stranger comes in, the whole city turns out. The Bible says they're filled with envy. It's, envy is akin to jealousy. It's not exactly the same, but it's akin to jealousy. They are jealous that these people have this big following, and jealousy is a very serious heart disease. It makes people do very bad things. In fact, Proverbs chapter 27 and verse 4 says, Wrath is cruel, anger is outrageous, but who is able to stand before envy? That is, 
Envy is worse than wrath. Envy is worse than anger. Matthew 27, 18. You remember what it says about those who crucified Jesus? You remember why they did it? Because of envy. The Bible says Jesus was put to death because the Jewish leaders had envy. That is, we're supposed to be the, how dare you come along? Brethren, I'm telling you, this same thing happens. I mentioned to you a couple weeks ago that I looked up illustrations about envy. Lots of them were preachers talking about how they would be envious of other preachers. That is, they were envious that this preacher had more invitations or more speaking appointments or more people who would come to hear him. Sometimes it can happen in an eldership. That is, people think, well, why, does, why do people always go to him? Why do they... It can happen in the church. People get jealous of other church members. You remember in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, they were envious of each other about who had the best spiritual gift. He can speak in tongues, and I don't have this gift. It was causing all kinds of problems in the church. This is a problem that goes to the heart, and I'm going to preach a sermon on it sometime, but it's one of these things that I think we think of as not that big a deal. Oh, he's got a problem with envy. That's not like hurting someone. That's not like physical abuse. Envy is at the root of murder. It's at, at the root of theft. Jesus was crucified because of envy. So what happens here? They preach the truth. The whole city turns out to hear the truth. But because of envy, what do they do? The text is going to say, because of envy, they began contradicting, and they began blaspheming and opposing. So Paul's preaching the gospel, and they started contradicting him. So he would preach something, and they would say, no, that's not right. That's not what that verse teaches. You, you've got it wrong. And then they would blaspheme. So he would say something that was true and Christian, and they would say, that's not right. You're speaking against God and everything that he said, they would oppose it. You're putting these verses together wrong. They're trying to turn people against Paul and make him look like a fool. Why? Because his message was wrong? No, because they were envious. All right, verse 46. Then Paul and Barnabas grew bold and said, It was necessary that the word of God should be spoken to you first, but since you reject it and judge yourselves unworthy of everlasting life, behold, we turn to the Gentiles. All right, this is interesting to me that verse 46 says, Then Paul and Barnabas grew bold. Why is that interesting? They've been preaching in this city. They've been opposing these people. They've had this back and forth. And then they grew bold? Wow. I mean, what, what point did it get to that they became bold here? This is very fascinating. And he, Paul says to them, it was necessary that the word of God first be spoken to you. Who's he mean when he says to you? Yeah, the Jews. The word of God goes to the Jews first. But since you reject it, let me see here. Where did I, okay, grew bold. Um, he says, since you reject it, the term reject it means you thrust it away. You pushed it away from yourself. Since you have rejected the truth, he says, and you judge yourself unworthy. What does it mean that they judged themselves unworthy? Were they saying, you know, we're looking at ourselves and we're just not worthy of the gospel? That's kind of what it sounds like, isn't it? It's not what it means. The word judge here is from the word krino. 
It means they determined that they were not worthy. They made the judgment that they were not worthy. They condemned themselves. What it means is by their actions, they condemned themselves and showed that they were not worthy of the gospel. They rejected it, thus showing we're not worthy of the gospel. And then notice this phrase down at the end. Um, go, ahead, uh, go ahead and read, um, well, before we do, I, I want to mention a couple of things. They rejected the gospel. Listen to this quote by Albert Barnes. He says, when people, even one time, deliberately reject the offer of God's mercy, it greatly endangers their salvation. The probability is that they then put the cup of salvation forever away from themselves. I have been thinking about that since I read it. He says, when a person rejects the gospel one time, they, they endanger their soul because they hear it preached and they say, no, no. And they start building a wall to it. Why does he say that they're pushing the cup of salvation away from themselves? If you start making reasons to reject it, it might be that you just keep building those reasons. He said, you have crossed a very dangerous line the first time that you're going to reject the truth. Um, he also says, the gospel produces an effect wherever it is preached. I'm going to end on that note. We'll pick up on verse 47 next time. But think about that. The gospel produces an effect in everybody's heart. Now, we read about two different types of people tonight, but the gospel produces an effect wherever it's preached. What are the two effects it might produce? Accept or reject. Either one is going to be some effect that people have. All right. Next Wednesday, I'm having surgery next Tuesday, and so depending on how I'm doing, I may be here Wednesday to teach, and I may not. So uh, if I'm doing well, I'll, we'll pick up on verse 47. If not, I think my brother Cleet's going to teach next week. So thank you.